on this episode of Mike Coscarelli Rules. Is the Derek Chauvin verdict the first step towards meaningful police reform in America? Is it worth it to take a three-day train ride across the United States? And musician-slash-comedian Sean O'Hagan is here to tell stories about the 1990s New York City punk scene. That's a tease, and this is Mike Coscarelli Rules. You're so cute. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli. Mike Coscarelli. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli is here as well. He's the producer for this failing fucking radio show. A big hand for Mike something Italian. Welcome back to Mike Coscarelli Rules, everybody. It is I. Your host, failed comedian Mike Coscarelli. Hope you had a good week. We got a great episode coming for you this week. Um, I have retreated from New York City to uh, my parents' palatial estate in a one Howell, New Jersey. You've all heard of Howell, yes? <laughs> um, it was a it was a nice little trip to get away from the city for a little bit. I am literally at all times alone in my room in my basement in Brooklyn. So I figured, um, you know, while I'm waiting for some of my roommates to sort of be a little more in summer mode, uh, hangout mode and and have somebody to talk to in the daytime, I came out here to uh, watch my dad work on his computer and watch my sister, uh, Nicole, who has Down syndrome, do all sorts of special ed classes over Zoom, which has been quite the experience. (laughs) I'll tell you what. Um, But I hope you're having a good week. Um, couple things to get to before we get to this week's interview, which is fantastic, by the way. I've been sitting on this one for about a week and a half, um, and I've almost, it's almost, it feels a little almost too special to release it. Uh, I had my friend Sean O'Hagan, who is a stand-up comedian, um, also a formerly um, uh, uh, a prolific member of the New York City uh, punk and hardcore scene. So as this podcast slowly transitions into more of a music-centric podcast because it's one of the last things I have any real interest in anyway. (laughs) Um, I thought that Sean was a great guest and damn was I right. Sean, I mean, this guy has been around for a long time. He's been in New York City, came from Philadelphia where he started doing um, uh, uh, punk music and stuff like that in the mid to late 80s and then came up to New York uh, and was here through sort of some of the craziest times in New York City, living in the uh, the South Bronx, um, uh, being a part of one of the the most iconic music scenes, that era specifically in New York City uh, ever, at least in America. So uh, it's a very fun interview. He's He's got a lot of interesting stories. And then at the end, we did something that I think that we're going to spin into a, a little video segment at some point in the near future where we showed each other our records. I showed him my five favorite records in my collection. He showed me his five. It actually turned out to be like seven um, because we couldn't really, it was kind of hard to pick five for each of us. But it's interesting. I think that um, seeing people's record collections, if they do collect records uh, and their taste in music, it really does tell you a lot about the type of person that that they are. It was a fun thing to do with uh, a, a buddy of mine. Uh, so I think you're going to love this interview coming up. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I did want to bring up the national story that it seems like everybody has to be thinking about and talking about Derek Chauvin found guilty of George Floyd's murder. Um, Finally, there's some justice. Usually these cases do not go this way. At best, police get some sort of suspension, a slap on the wrist, and there's somebody who's dead and a family is grieving. And justice is hardly ever done. Um, 
in this case, it, it feels like that's what happened. Finally. Uh, again, I, I think I had said it the week before. I don't really know how you look at the video um, and not think that this had some sort of of uh, malicious intent to it and that it was beyond just any sort of routine police activity. His knee was on the dude's neck for literally eight minutes. I mean, you know the whole story. It's folklore at this point. It's really sad to see that that happened. Um, and watching that video is really just bone chilling to see a, literally the life leave another person um, and Chauvin not really do much to uh, try to prevent it. Um, and there were some people that were saying that the charges might be too much. If you want to look at what the actual charges were, again, I'm not a lawyer, but he was found guilty of unintentional second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Uh, you know, looking at those on the surface as an as a somebody without a law degree, I don't think that those are all that um, egregious. The sentencing is going to take place uh, in a little bit. And the state sentencing guidelines recommend that he gets 12 and a half years in prison. Um, But prosecutors might seek more, try to get him 40 years in prison. Listen, man, you fucking killed somebody. Uh, It's hard to have any sympathy, even first offender or whatever. It doesn't really matter. He killed somebody. I I, I mean, what what kind of message does that send to the family if this dude doesn't get his, his, uh, if the dude's sentencing is not, uh, appropriate. I don't. Twelve and a half years almost seems light. Um, but at least it's justice, and that is definitely new for us. Where we are not used to seeing these cops ever. You know, these guys usually walk when something like this happens. So, you know, it's very sad to to see that someone had to die. But maybe this is at least a step in the right direction, and people are recognizing that there needs to be police reform. Um, and maybe this sends a message to police officers. You know, this isn't fucking uh, NYPD blue, you know? This is not a situation where you're chasing a bad guy down the alley and he's shooting guns back at you. And I, I, we had this narrative about policing for so long that the police are always the good guys and the you know, bad guys running away and they're shooting back at the police. Pow, pow, pow. you never take me alive, copper. But that's not what happened, man. Like, people shouldn't be getting killed over routine police stops, traffic stops. It just shouldn't be happening. It doesn't matter... Uh, you know, what the situation is. Unless the guy has literally got a gun in his hands, it does happen. Let's not just say that police are never in danger. But there's videotape. There's cameras everywhere now. And how are we, the public, supposed to look at the footage of what's happened, see that situation, and think anything other than Chauvin acted erratically and and, and didn't need, uh, use I, I mean, extreme excessive force, and a guy is dead. Police can't be doing that, man. If 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 someone else did that, if there was a, some sort of skirmish, I mean, it kind of goes back to the Trayvon Martin situation, um, which became a very very tricky uh, tricky legal matter. But regular people can't just leave their fucking knee on somebody's neck and, and kill somebody else. I don't know what makes it different when you're when you have a badge on your chest. And I think that that's like the the tricky thing about this whole thing, and and sort of changing. Um, the older generation's mind about some of this. Cause I, I do think that there are some older people, I'm not going to be specific, but some people that perhaps I have talked to that think that maybe the sentencing was a little too much, but I don't see it that way. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think a big portion of America sees it that way either. Um, young person, Ronnie, will you please get on the zoom? Uh, 
How you doing, Mike? I'm good, Ronnie. Uh, before we get into your wild week, um, your generation, you don't know a single person that didn't think that this Chauvin case, that the, the charges might be too heavy. Do you? No, I, I think this guy should be in, in prison for life. And I think that's what most people think, my age at least. Okay, making sure. Because like I said, I think there's some old farts hanging around that, that oh, this guy's life is over now. I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, he killed somebody. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, but the thing is, who who cares about this guy? He, he that's, that's the mindset that, that I'm approaching it with. He yeah. doesn't deserve to have a life anymore. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you kill somebody, that's usually how it goes. You, you usually don't just yeah. uh, uh, walk away and go, oops. Well, you shouldn't at least, you know. Um, all right. I'd say that puts a bow on that. I don't know what else there is to say about, uh, Mr. Chauvin. Uh, you stink. Uh, you killed somebody. Glad you're going to jail. Uh, but let's turn to you, Ronnie. We turn our attention to the youth. Um, we mentioned it last week on the show, but you weren't available for recording. You weren't here when we were doing the intro or anything like that because you were taking a cross country train trip from Los Angeles to New York. Um, how was it? Because this is, I think, the only way that I'm ever going to make it to Los Angeles. As you know, I have a an immense fear of flying that I'll probably never get over, nor make steps to try to get over it. So is it worth it? Yeah, I, I got to say it's worth it. I think the, the only thing I did wrong was maybe breaking up the trip a little bit more. The first leg of it from L.A. to Chicago was just so beautiful. I spent the time in the observation car looking out the window, looking at America pass me by couldn't recommend it more the second half was a little bit more different you get on the trigo they leave the lights on all night there's people yelling so that was a little bit more rough uh but overall it was a really great experience i met a lot of interesting people on the train i didn't sleep for three days but i i wouldn't train it I'm you didn't sleep at all you just couldn't fall asleep on the train yeah i mean i was in a, a basically what's a imagine a plane seat i mean you have you been ever been on an amtrak it's like yeah, yeah. Amtrak seat. Yeah, yeah so I, I was in a seat like that for three days. Oh my god! You, see, the thing is, I was able to um, just to just to give some like context on what a maniac I am. So my last year, last summer, my um, my best friend, I was best man in his wedding, and um, he had his bachelor party in Nashville, and instead of the hour and a half flight to Nashville with all of my friends. There was like 17 people that went. Uh, I opted to take a train to Charlotte, which was seven hours, I think. Seven, eight hours on the train. Um, And then I drove six hours from Charlotte West to Nashville. (laughs) And, but the reason I said that is because I slept fine on that Amtrak. <laughs> I had like I got like a three hour nap in for sure, and then I, I remember like setting an alarm because I didn't. Want, the other thing is the one thing that's bad about a train as opposed to a flight. Like flight is uh, uh, the one thing I will say about a plane is when you take off, usually, usually you land in your destination. There's no chance, and someone will wake you up if you fall asleep, and they'll say, "Mike, get up. It's t- we're in Hawaii or whatever." Uh, on a train, they don't do that. <laughs> if you miss your stop, you're in New Orleans now, or you're in like whatever. Um, and I learned almost learned that the hard way, where I, I almost missed the Charlotte stop, and I would have just ended up in another part of the country, uh, which would have been fucking outrageous. But 
Um, so what do you, what's the route? Do they take you, you said it, they take you, LA is Southern California. So it, it takes you up what through, like you said, like New Mexico and yeah, I went LA, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, um, Kansas, Iowa, all that jazz, you know, all those states kind of merged together, uh, over to Chicago. And then I had, a little layover in Chicago where I just sat in like a sterile Amtrak room and then Chicago to New York, which I thought was a pretty direct, I thought I was doing the Chicago, Philly, New York, but it dipped down into Washington, DC. And I had to sit through all that wow. I had to go through West Virginia. Yeah. So, so that was, that was the more, the, the tough part of the journey. What was the, what was your favorite thing to see on the train in terms like what state that you hadn't been through that you perhaps wanted to see uh i would say arizona uh arizona was it was pretty early in the morning but new mexico was really cool i've I've never been down there and i hardly saw any civilization we were all in the back country new mexico but honestly the best part of it was the the people on the train were very very interesting yeah because the people taking a cross-country train trip are not not your usual crowd i would bet that was probably the most fun part yeah (laughs) we met uh, a French backpacker and uh, a lot of Mennonite people who don't travel by plane. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun, a lot of interesting conversations. So you guys were hanging out, like it was social. It wasn't like a uh... very social. Really, yeah, that's that's what I would say about train travel that I like so much is you you have to be social. You're sitting in the observation car and there's you know a dozen other people in there and you're all up in each other's space. So people just start talking to you and like you know getting in your business interesting so that's the those are the experiences that when they do the train stuff like when you watch an old movie and people are traveling by train and like like Cary Grant is all of a sudden like eating dinner with somebody that he met on the train that's something that I feel like would never happen now because people don't travel like that everybody's kind of like in their own space uh like on a plane you don't I don't think you normally make friends I made friends last time I was on a plane that made an emergency landing the woman next to me was like a like a neuroscientist or something and like was able to, to talk me down from having a complete panic attack. <laughs> and we became, she was like, we were like holding hands by the end of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but other than that, I don't think that like, it, I don't think that that's like the way people um, ever think to travel anymore. So uh, it's interesting though, that that like everybody on the train was sort of like down to like, all right, cool. You're going to Chicago. I'm going to Iowa. I'm going whatever. And just hang out. Yeah. Yeah, it was like where where are you from? Where are you going? Why are you traveling? It was great. Interesting. I loved it. All right. Um, yeah. So you do you do recommend it? You wouldn't do it. Would you do it again though? I I wouldn't do the cross country again. I would maybe do some sort of West Coast version of it. Like up and down. I, I do recommend it. Up and down. Yeah. yeah, I think that'd be. And I was talking to a guy who has done that before, and he said it's it's probably the most beautiful train ride you could ever take in the U.S. Wow. So. Yeah, I recommend it just probably with more planning than I did. I don't recommend doing Oh, a 20-year-old didn't plan a, a trip correctly? <laughs> surprise, yeah, surprise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's definitely worth it, worth your time. And it was like it was like 100 bucks for for 3 days of travel and seeing all of America. So, you can't beat that. Cool. All right, Ronnie. Well, thank you for telling us about it. Folks, we're going to get to Sean O'Hagan, but before we do that, you can find me at Mike Coscarelli on Instagram and Twitter. You can find Ronnie at Ronnie Side on Instagram. Uh, leave us a review. 
Um, as many stars as you'd like. I, I think it's bad. We're not uh, allegedly, Ronnie, we're not supposed to coerce people into saying, give us a five star review. So guys, leave us a review as many stars as you want, but more is better. So keep that in mind. Um, and, uh, Sean's coming up on the other side. If you want to write the podcast, coskrules at gmail.com, C-O-S-C-R-U-L-E-S at gmail.com. If you have negative feedback, send it there. No reason to send it, uh, to Apple podcasts, uh, put it on the review. No reason to do that. Keep it in the family, baby. That's all we're worried about here. Oh, Mike. Also. We're on YouTube now. If you go to Mike Coscarelli Rules on YouTube, you can find some old episodes and watch those. We're uploading them as we go. So check that oh, out. Oh, yeah. Ronnie. Ronnie got all this stuff on YouTube. God damn. I got to give Ronnie a raise. Actually, I got to give Ronnie. Ronnie, I got to give you the money that I owe you from last week <laughs> before I give you a raise. <laughs> Listen, hey, we're making strides. That's all that matters. Um, all right, guys. So, yeah, check out the YouTube now. I forgot. We have some content there. Ronnie's better at running this than I am. So, uh, thank you, Ronnie. Uh, All right, guys. We'll see you in just a few seconds with Sean O'Hagan. All right, everybody, welcome back to Mike Coscarelli Rules. Uh, This is going to be a very fun segment. Uh, I'm joined now by a friend. Uh, This guy, man, he's a renaissance man, truly. Uh, I've I've known him for uh, a handful of years running around New York City and the the New York City comedy scene because he is a stand-up comedian. He is a musician. He's a father. He's a husband. uh, And he is a... um, He is a... um, he is an enjoyer of life. He he likes all things creative, <laughs> and I'm I'm really I'm just trying to <laughs> be poetic, which I'm I'm not. But uh, I'm joined now by Sean O'Hagan. Thank you for joining me today, buddy. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm I'm very excited that you're here. Um, so there's a lot going on uh, with things reopening right now. Um, in New York City specifically, I think I've kind of talked about it on this show in the past a little bit. But one of the things that I think uh, a big city like New York and I guess L.A. and um, I don't know about San Francisco, but there, Chicago, there's some cities where there's a there are creative scenes where in New York you have the theater scene, you have the comedy scene, you have the music scene, you have uh, you know, you have the actual uh, art scene. Um, and that's really been shut down for the past year. Um, and you're a guy who you grew up in Philly or around Philly. Did you grow up in the city? In, yeah, in Philly. Okay. You grew up in, in Philly, Philly, metropolitan city, obviously. And then you came up to New York at a, at a certain point and then you jumped into the hardcore and the punk scene, which in the early nineties or, or late eighties, I guess, whenever you got here sounds insane. Uh, then you were part of the New York city comedy scene here for a, 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 big chunk of time, which we both know is full of sociopaths and maniacs. Um, But with scene culture sort of being something that we've missed out on for the past year and that having to kind of like um, sprout legs and come back to life once everything reopens, it got me thinking about um, sort of all of these different phases that New York has gone through. And you 
were there for one of its most interesting phases, which was the the late eighties and nineties music scene, punk scene and and at that time you had all sorts of different types of music fusing together because the Beastie Boys realistically I guess are like the greatest champions of that early part of the era. Um they were hip hop artists, but they didn't just do hip hop. Um, they were like New York guys that came out of that scene. Um, so I figured it would be cool to talk to you about what that was like. Um, for the listeners to understand your credentials here, um, how many bands were you in over, let's say, a span of, could we say a span of 10 years? I mean, yeah, I, when I started doing comedy, I kind of stopped doing bands, but. Right. Longer than that, let's say like 86 to 2010. I mean, that's, you know, that's 24 years, but. That's crazy. <laughs> I didn't realize that uh, you were, you were like in the scene for that long. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it was mostly, uh, you know, it was in Philly in the eighties. Um, but I did come to New York uh, in like 86, 87 uh, for shows. Uh, we used to come up to CBGB's um, and, uh, and then I moved to New York in 1993 um, so, you know, I was, I was in the Philly hardcore scene and the Philly music scene in the, in the eighties and early nineties, and then moved to New York and became part of the scene here. We, I made friends, uh, with guys in bands and bands in New York in the, in the eighties. Um, and those became some of my friends when I moved to New York. Um, so I did some cool stuff, saw some, some pretty good bands. Um, so yeah, I mean, five, I'd say about five bands in that, in that span, uh, most of them were kind of hardcore punk, um, but there was one band called Plastic Eaters, which was actually more of a, it's kind of like jungle punk. You know what I mean? It was like Prodigy meets The Clash. Okay. Um, and that's probably more, the most successful band. None of the bands were really successful, but <laughs> the band that had the most commercial, uh, you know, the biggest chance of any sort of commercial success. You know, we had, a, we had an Adidas sponsorship. We had... We played for some major labels. We had, uh, you know, label interest. We played some pretty high-end shows. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question there, but I Sorry. maybe 24 years in music. 24 uh, years. but So how, roughly how many bands do you think that is, if you had a, a guess? How many bands that I was in in that time? Yeah. Do you do you know off the top of your head? I know that, like, yeah. like part of the scene is just sort of, like, people pick up, move, you go to different bands and stuff mm. like that but do you actually have the number in your head i was in five bands were actually oh, either yeah which i well that i sang or played guitar or wrote music yeah. for um and you know we, all the bands recorded stuff we had you know seven inch records demo tapes cds you know all you know the the, the different you know ways to get our music out there um, but i you know when i came to new york uh in 87 to see bands, hardcore bands at CBGB's, it was, it was great. It was like, a, it was a, it was a cool scene, you know, being from Philly, New York was like the next level of, of like, Oh shit. All my favorite bands were kind of from New York. Yeah. So to come up here and see them and go to matinees at CBGB's and hang out and see all the people that you kind of hear about, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a violent kind of scene, honestly. I mean, it was, you know, this is were, what I wanted to get a, to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this the is scene what I want to know about. Violent. <laughs> well, the scene in Philly was violent as well. I mean, the thing is that the hardcore scene in 86, 87, 88 was kind of starting to be infiltrated with like skinheads and not always 
Yeah. You know, there's different kinds of skinheads, but these are more like <laughs> these are the bad ones. Nazi skinheads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we used to in Philly, <laughs> we used to fight skinheads like that was, you know, and, and, and these Nazi guys that would come down to our shows from like North Jersey or. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, different places in the suburbs of Philly, you know, so there'd be like a show. And then a fight would break out. Everybody would be kind of hanging out. And then all of a sudden, skinheads would come in and do some ill stuff and maybe but, Sig Heil or say some racist <laughs> shit. And then there's a big fight. You know? But why? This is the thing. What what drew skinheads? Because like knowing you personally uh, and uh, like knowing that you've been a part of these ce- the Philly and the New York scenes for as long as you've been a part of like. I can't imagine if there's people like you who like very liberal, open guy, like warm person. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it. I can't imagine that the scene is very inviting to skinheads. What what, what well, draws I mean, them? I don't really know exactly what draws them. I mean, I guess the the moshing and the kind of like the aggressive. You know, you say like these nice things about me, but you know, every Sunday for years I was in a mosh pit. It was like being a fist fight every Sunday for, for years doing flips off the stage, moshing and just going off. And the thing, when I first started going to shows in like 85, 86, even parts of 87, every in Philly, it was like a scene. Everybody kind of knew each other. It was like, you know, there was different Mohawk dudes, punk rock dudes, even some skinheads that were not racist. You know what I'm saying? So it was a nice kind of scene like that, but then more outside influence, things started happening and there became an influx of skinheads and some Nazis that wanted to fight. And like, let's go to the hardcore show where they like some of the bands, but they maybe didn't agree with the politics and it would just be like a kind of a free for all, you know? Um, just like, I remember like I had a car, somebody threw a 40 bottle through the windshield of my car. You know what I mean? Like just scraps that just happened. This is a skinhead or this is just like somebody. Yeah, no, it was a, there was a, there was a fight with some skin. It was crazy because the sh- these particular shows were at a place called Club Pizzazz in Philly, which and it was literally like five minutes from my house. And the neighborhood was a very mixed neighborhood, especially where Club Pizzazz was. There was like black, white, Spanish. And these skinheads would come and like this mostly black area where Pizzazz was. And they'd be walking around and we'd be like, what? It, like, it was just kind of weird. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, and like there'd be things going on and then there'd be a fight and then it would go out into the street and then they're on one side of the street. We're on the other, they're throwing bottles at it. It was just, you know, just kind of went down like that. Do you think that that had more to do with the fact that it was Philly or do you think it had like what draws? Cause when I was in high school, I, I never got into, I like punk music. I never got into the, the cruxes of, of this stuff. Like I did not, I, I like punk music, like the clash. I like the dead Kennedys. I like the misfits, you know, sort of like the more, I guess, mainstream punk bands, which in and of itself, I guess is, is kind of like, um, you know, I don't know if uh, we, we can talk about the, the mainstream punk bands later. Cause I do have some questions for you about just like how you view, uh, those bands. But I think part of the idea of punk is that you're not like selling out, and when you're that big and mainstream, maybe it's like, uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. But so those were the bands that I liked, but I had a bunch of people that I was in high school with that I liked that I was friends with that were into this type of scene. And I kind of never understood the, when they were explaining to me what a mosh pit was when I was like 15 or 16, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, you just show up and you guys like, 
punch each other and like like what was the what's the appeal to that when you're a young person and you know that that's sort of like the scene that because at that point and you're talking about the mid to late 80s that stuff is not even particularly popular yet like by the time i was in high school that had been a, um a, a normal thing in a scene for for 15 20 years already but you're kind of there at the onset of all this stuff. So what draws young Sean O'Hagan to the mosh pit, to, to people throwing fists around and getting physical is like, I'm just curious. I was, I was like in the early eighties, I was in skateboarding, you know what I mean? And skateboarding, you know, kind of was hand in hand almost with like punk rock. So that's how I got into punk rock. I heard about the dead Kennedys. I mean, I heard about these bands like the suicidal tendencies and, 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 and bands like that. And that kind of like drew me in, you know, and then that was like, oh, this is like a this is a kind of an aggressive scene. But like the kids are cool, like they're they're not like the normal like jocks at, at, at high school. They're not like, you know what I mean? They're like this dude. I remember when I was in ninth grade, there was a group of like four dudes, they all had leather jackets. We called them the leather jacket gang. You know, and they were like, they would some of them would have mohawks. And I was like, yo, these this is cool. Dudes, are anarchy earrings and. You know, so I was like, oh, this is kind of so then, you know, that wasn't happening right where I lived. I had to, like, take the, the subway to go like to Center City or to West Philly to out to shows. And I discovered this community of people that were like, you know, there was skateboarding going on, but they were just like minded people. They were into things that were kind of different. You know what I'm saying? There were things that were like, you know, there was a little political edge to it. There was. You know, I for a while I was like straight edge, like I didn't drink or anything. You know what I'm saying? So like there was a straight edge scene. It's like I met these group of people, and it's like you know we had this we had this aggressive side to us. But if somebody's moshing and they fell down, you picked them up. You didn't bash them. You know what I mean? So that was like oh, it was unspoken. You know what I'm saying? It was funny when sometimes people that weren't in the scene would show up, and they think it's just a free for all of people like punching and. You know, you could see they looked a little different. They looked more jock-like or whatever. And they just were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like doing this, kind of like they weren't into the music. They were into like the just the pushing people and punching people. And they were weeded out immediately and there'd be fights with them. Um, so I think it's just like a lifestyle thing. Like I've always been into kind of alternative things, not, you know, music-wise, punk rock and things like that. And, uh, you know, it just... You know, I discovered like veganism through, you know, guys that like hardcore guys that were like vegans and stuff. And, you know, they're caring about animals and caring about things like that. So it's like all these kind of issues that were just kind of cool to me. It's that I very was- it's so weird to me because I, I feel the same way. All the, the I think that the reason that I connected with the kids that were into this stuff, even though I couldn't I couldn't get into the music like I just could. It wasn't I, you know, I love music as much as anybody like I'm a uh you know, this is in some ways sort of becoming a music podcast, I think. But um, I just was never able to click with the music. But the people that I knew that were going, there was this kid, um, Mike something. I can't remember his last name, but he was a big, fat guy. And he was a singer for some band, you know, some one of these bands in New Jersey. And um, we just got like he was just a great guy. Like he was just like a nice guy. He, he was a gentle dude, but he was this big fat motherfucker that like used to scream into a microphone and wore the, you know, like the, the denim jacket without the sleeves. And it's like all cut up and there's like, you know, a black flag, uh, patch on it and and all that stuff. And, um, 
he was the same way. He didn't like drink. He his whole th- he had like a code of a samurai, you know, like like it's very appealing and it is it's interesting to me that the music is so aggressive and then it, from even like the the people that are sort of like the um the faces of it. Like if you listen to Henry Rollins, he's like a very smart guy and very like, like again, I think he's, I think he's a vegetarian too. Like doesn't really drink. Like he's just like a very um, present mindful type of person. Then I guess that that element of it is appealing. It's just so weird to me. Cause you'd think that the people that make this music are just like fucking maniacs, you know, and like complete, like just look out for blood, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, that's that's kind of the, the the outside, but I think a lot of them, at least a lot of the people I met in the hardcore and punk scene, like on the inside, they were like, you know, just gent- like just gentle, kind of like, well, you know, things thought out. Not all the time. I mean, there's certain, you know, that's the thing about hardcore and punk. It does bring together a lot of different kind of people. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's the just the kind of reckless people that, that just – fuck shit up and they don't care about people like there's there's that too i mean because in the 80s especially in new york city there'd be dudes in the mosh pit with hammers and shit you know what i mean right yeah that's that must be terrifying (laughs) yeah and it it was (laughs) you know what i'm saying yeah (laughs) but like you know when at least my experience with going to hardcore shows and going in like i would go into the pit immediately like and you kind of feel it out you see who's kind of cool you know but then you know, you make eye contact, you, you and a guy see a guy, you both pick them up, you know, and, and, and like I made these crazy kind of connections in the pit. But then you also saw the dudes that were just fucking batshit crazy and you stayed away from them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As best as you could. Right. But if you were in the pit and you're respectful and you're moshing and you're just kind of doing your like skanking and doing your dancing and kind of not trying to like, I mean, you did throw elbows and fists and stuff, but I mean, not like literally trying to hit somebody it's like oh i hit this guy you know what i mean i mean look at my pinky (laughs) like it's not it'll never be straight again (laughs) that's from being in a mosh pit you know what i'm saying like i can't straighten you know what i mean or look at look at this finger this this knuckle like torn ligaments like in the pit like somebody i hit somebody's face or somebody elbowed me or whatever you know you pick up these little battle scars or whatever but you know you there were people that were just insane and didn't give a shit and you kind of stayed away from them. But there are also lifelong friends of people that I met in the mosh pit that I could still text. Like, yo, remember this? You know, and Or like doing flips off the stage. You know, it's just like it's this community of people that are alternative that like most of the bands are not trying to sell out and make a lot of money. You know, and it's it's just like a, it was just a really cool community of people that hung out and had the same sort of beliefs. And now it's just it's insane. I mean, it's like. I don't even like I, I try to pay attention to hardcores, you know, as a 51 year old man. But, you know, I go to shows and like everybody has like the same look. You know, there's no more punk kids with Mohawks and hardcore kids like the punk scene, something else. The hardcore scene, something else. The straight edge scene, something else. But, like when I would go to shows, there would be five bands and sometimes with five different type of bands. Like it was the shit. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. Well, so take me then, you're in Philly for a period of time. You're going to the shows. You're in bands in Philly too, right? Early on? Yeah. So what? at what point, what's the push to go to New York and when do you do it? Well, I mean, the, the band that I was in Philly at the time, there was three bands that kind of happened. Uh, I was in this band called Hinkley's Revenge. 
And uh, you have a poster, right? You know, was, if you're if you're watching this like, on YouTube, here's the flyer. There you go. You know, there's, there's Reagan this looking Reagan. up at Hinkley. <laughs> so yeah, classic you know, kind of, '80s punk. <laughs> Reagan, exactly. Fuck you, Reagan. Yeah, dude. Reagan, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, Ronald. Fuck you. Like, it's like you know, Reagan's yeah. the whole reason hardcore started. I know. I mean, punk turned into hardcore because of all the bullshit with that. But so we were in a band called Hinkley's Revenge. My singer was like three years older than me. He was so fucking punk rocky. I was in ninth grade and he was like in 12th grade or something you know i'm like 15 or 16 in 10th or 11th grade he's already out of school he's got tattoos he shaved he had a mohawk right and he would put nair on the side of his head so that his hair wouldn't grow in like you know that stuff yeah yeah yeah. that's what you that's what we used in high school to like like when we thought that having armpit hair was like like weird or like chest hair young young yeah he put it <laughs> put it on his head he put it on the side of his head oh god you know what i'm saying that shit hurts so like too in, that's not like comfortable yeah it's very uncomfortable see he was like the punk rock you know and he we played a show and the cops showed up and he got beat up by the cops oh, right and yeah. like you know it, it was so funny cuz the next practice he showed up with like he still had the same pants on with like the blood stains from the cops beating him up it was he was so punk rock you know what I'm saying? Um, and like that was when I was in college, I, I started a band up in college called Standing Eight, which is an, another like hardcore sort of metal band. We made a demo tape. Here it is. I just found it in storage the other I day. Love it. Behind like, Sean, if you're listening to the to just the audio and you're not watching this once it hits YouTube or if this isn't a clip for Instagram, Sean is sitting in front of a giant um bookshelf full of records there's a marshall amp on top of it there's a bowie poster on the wall like sean is sean is playing the part right now. i mean he's not playing the part but like this is, this is my life. yeah this just goes to show you the the type of dude we're dealing with here literally has still has cassette tapes do you have a cassette player still dude, the seven inch for my band brick house jeez like, man fucking crazy i have a cassette player and a uh turntable that actually plugs into the computer okay got it um, and i can record stuff like so I you can, can play record, your cassette and you can, can put it in the mp3s of this yeah. yeah okay sick um but go go back to the bands go back to where we're trying to get you from philly to new york that's where we're trying to get okay to. Yeah, yeah so well that's the thing so you know early 90s uh i'm out of college i'm, I'm living in uh philly and i'm going up to new york for shows and my girlfriend at the time lived in the bronx Okay, and it was just kind of like I always loved New York, and I'm like, I want to live in New York. So, but this is the Bronx, and this is uh, late '80s, ninety, ninety-one, ninety-two, and she was in the South Bronx, and it was kind of the South Bronx. (laughs) It was fucking nuts. I ain't gonna lie. (laughs) I remember like going to her house, uh, you know, and I lived in Philly, which was what it was, but it wasn't the fucking South Bronx. It wasn't the Bronx at all. And I remember looking out her bedroom window. And there was a uh, like a lamp, like she was like on the fifth floor or something. And there was a lamppost, like a light. And there was literally like something that looked like a person hanging from this lamp thing. And it was like gunshots all night. And it was scary. It was fucking nuts. Um, so I moved to the Bronx, but I moved to a different part. And I just started going. I met some of the people that I knew in Philly would play New York. And I kind of just would go to a show and would like, Oh, you know, and then I just became friends with like guys in New York and bands. Um, one of my first friends was in this band called dark side, which is like a metally hardcore band. And I just started, they had shows on bond street, you know, bond street, that she, she nice block uh, right off of Broadway. There's a place called the bond street cafe. They had hardcore shows there. CBGB's was happening. 
Um, and it was kind of, it was again, violent, but like, I kind of knew how to go into the pit and like, look, you know, see the guys that were like hanging with the other guys that I sort of knew and they saw me and they would pick me up and I would pick, you know, I would help them out. And as long as you're not a dick, you get that respect in the pit back then. You know what I'm saying? Well, um, so when you get to New York, is that scene, are they welcoming or is it hard to break in? Because you know from doing comedy, like everybody's a dick. Everybody's like, that's a scene no. that's kind of not easy to break into. You come around for a little while. You're not that funny yet. People hold it against <laughs> you. People think that you're like a piece of shit because especially you started doing standup as an, as a guy who was like a little older. I was a kid when when I started. So like. I remember thinking that like guys that were in their thirties or older than that, that were like, like getting into the scene. Like at, when I was 24, I was like, this guy's a loser, you know? And then I matured oh, and yeah. fucking got rid of that. But like, you start thinking that at first, cause you're just like, Oh, this guy's trying to like, like this is like a young man's game. You know what I mean? And people are not all that welcoming uh, until you're around for a little while. And even still people with their stupid egos, make things yeah, worse that's the thing. You know? hardcore is universal man yeah. like it's like oh this dude's from philly you know this guy like one of my uh, boys bands was this band stark weather um and they played you know they would play new york i'd go see them and they'd know a bunch of these dudes and he'd introduce me to them and then the next show i'd be like hey what's up blah, 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 blah. and i became friends like with guys like that you know what i'm saying and i was kind of i was drinking and i was fucking a little crazy uh, and i remember there was a show uh, with a bunch of New York bands and my boys band uh, from Philly, Starkweather. And it was at the Continental. Um, they had a hardcore show there. And I snuck in a bottle of Jägermeister. And we were all fucking drinking from a bottle of Jägermeister. And behind the bar, there was a big mirror. And I took the bottle of Jägermeister and I just fucking threw it at the mirror and smashed it behind the bar. <laughs> and all these dudes were like, yo, this motherfucker's crazy. So then like I had weird props for being the dude who threw the Jäger bottle Yo, remember the bottle of Jaeger? Like these dudes <laughs> in Brooklyn, like, like, yo, there's a dude with the bottle of Jaeger. Yo, remember that shit? Ba, 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 ba. And I'm like, oh yeah, that, that was, you know, that was me. And uh, so then like that kind of was, you know, another way <laughs> to connect. Yeah. Being the echo through the bottle of Jaeger through the fucking mirror behind the fucking bar. You know what I'm saying? So what was the craziest thing that you think you did when you were in that scene? And I'm assuming it's not like, I'm assuming you're just kind of in the moment. It's not like I have to do something crazy to get these people. Oh, no, no. And it was like a friend of mine from Philly was up. We were just going to get extra fucked up and like, yo, let's drink this Jaeger at the show in a bot in our pocket, you know? Um, I mean, I, you know, I didn't do, it wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't looking to like fuck shit up uh, for the scene. Like if there was a show at a place that I cared about and respected, I wouldn't fuck it up. You know what I mean? I wouldn't try to destroy it. Certain bands would go and just destroy the place and not give a fuck. But like, I, I wasn't trying to be the dude that got the place shut down because then you're that asshole. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So like just doing flips off the stage and, you know, seeing hammers in the pit, like, you know, just like seeing crazy shit, not necessarily doing crazy shit. You know what I mean? Um. Yeah, really, there wasn't anything that I did at a show besides flipping off the stage and, you know, just kind of hanging out just with crazy motherfuckers. That right. would, you know what I'm saying? Well, like, so tell me about these crazy motherfuckers. Like, this is what I'm trying to get to. I'm, I'm trying to get to the chaos, <laughs> you know, because I'm thinking the, like when whenever I whenever you tell us stories, because we've had like there's been stories over the group texts, you know, because we, we have a yeah. bunch of like mutual friends and stuff. And we'll just like 
talk about whatever's going on, especially during the pandemic. But every time I hear or read one of these stories, I picture New York in the 90s, which in and of itself was like, I don't know that. I think if you look at the numbers uh, right before Giuliani came in, that was when New York was sort of like at its most violent or so I, I think that like from the mid like early to mid 90s i'm just thinking like you in the lower east side or in the east village or or like on the bowery or over there and just utter chaos you know what i mean i'm thinking just like 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 crackheads you guys down there fucking like like uh gangs drugs violence (laughs) because that's the only thing that i can think of when i hear these stories i'm just like i'm picturing like buildings on fire like warehouses with broken windows and like like because that's i i know that new york was was like that in the in the 90s you know what i mean oh yeah i mean just you know going i remember seeing somebody stabbed out in front of this place coney island high Uh which was uh you ever hear that place no it was on saint mark's right it was like right in the middle of like the east village and is you know it was a cool spot they had, uh, you know, they had a lot of hardcore shows and punk shows and stuff. And, you know, some dude just like bleeding, yeah, like just blood. And I had, I like to kind of take, I used to like to take a lot of pictures and shit, but I remember I was like taking pictures and this fucking dude covered in tattoos, like pushed me against the car. I said, yo, don't fucking take no more pictures. I'm like, all right, dude, I don't fucking, he's like, so I, I was done. You know what I mean? Can't film out like done. You know what I mean? And I saw like some crazy shit like that. There was a band out of Philly called the Bad Luck 13 Riot Extravaganza. Okay. And they were all about- Did you see this? I'm strapping in. (laughs) They were all about fucking shit up. Yeah. They they did a- They came to New York uh, in a bus, like a big yellow bus, like those school buses. And all these crazy dudes from Philly, they played at this place called the Pyramid Club, which is just closed. Just closed. Yeah, yeah, I saw. Unfortunate. Uh, Did you ever do stand up there? I did one time I did stand up there and I played there. My band played there several times. Yeah. There was a run in the early two thousands where the pyramid club was doing hardcore shows like every weekend. And it was fucking awesome. My band, uh, everyday dollars, which is, uh, see the poster. This band right here. There we go. Got a CD. Love it. And a seven inch. Love Uh, it. Everyday dollars played there a bunch of times in the, in the mid two thousands. It was early to mid two thousands. Um, and I don't know, you know, we had shows every week and it was an awesome scene. And then at one point, I don't know what happened, but some people within the scene got mad at the dudes who ran it and they fucking went in there and they fucking choked out one of the guys who run the place and then really? more hardcore shows at a uh, pyramid. <laughs> Jeez, man. But, but before that happened, Bad Luck 13 Riot Extravaganza. Uh, now, they were like notorious for fucking shit up and not caring. Yeah. Like those dudes would come on stage with bats that they would light on fire. They would put barbed wire around bats and hit each other and be bleeding. And like the the one dude had like a meat cleaver sort of smock with like blood on it. Some of them had wrestling masks. They would shoot off Roman candles and fireworks. They had a, it was almost like wrestling on stage. They had fluorescent light bulbs and they'd smash it over the head and they would be shooting Roman candles and throwing fireworks into the crowd. So they show up from Philly to the pyramid club, like five bands played and they were the last band and they literally lasted not even one song. 
where they, you know, all the dudes rolled in with the trash cans and all that shit. They were like, jin, 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 jin. they started shooting off the Roman candles and the dude's like, no, 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 this is it. It's a wrap. And they turned the power off. Wow. And, like they were like breaking shit. Like they were all about fucking shit up. And in, I actually, one of my bands played with them and they had to play these shows as, as other names. I figured I was going to, this does going to be my next question. How do you get booked? If you have a reputation of showing up and hitting they, somebody they, with they a barbed wire homicidals bat. one time. Uh, they went as the uh, the homocidals one time. Oh my god! Like they you know they changed they changed the uh, the name of their band all the time, but they were like they were always the last band to play because everybody knew that as soon as they stepped on stage, it would be like if for them to get through, you know, a set. I don't is is rare. Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, but you know that was that was a little different. That was the nineties, early two thousands. It was. You know, they, they don't think they ever played CBGBs or if they did, they played it and didn't fuck it up like that. Right. You know what I mean? They were trying to get the shit place shut down. A lot of the places they would get shut down. They didn't give a fuck about the dude would book them at some place that normally didn't do hardcore punk shows. Yeah. And a few bands would play and the owner would be like, oh, this is cool. You know, dudes are moshing, but it's cool. And then fucking Bad Luck 13 would come on. Jun, 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 jun. <laughs> yeah. Rocking, fucking trash cans, fluorescent <laughs> bulbs, barbed wire, blood. Yeah. And it rap, you know. So that was crazy seeing them over the years. I, You know, I kind of skimmed over them at first when I was thinking about the crazy <laughs> shit to see. But I'm like, how could I forget about I'm glad you didn't forget because that sounds insane. Riot extravaganza. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, well, I, I think it, it's, it's funny because it, the fact that this band had to keep changing their name solely for the purpose of being able to just go to these clubs and just wreak havoc and stir up hell. It is really yeah. interesting because it seems like music now, not just music, but like any art form, um, people are so interested in brand building and the idea of like sort of, I don't want to say even being on your best behavior, but the idea of just like having an agenda other than making money doing what you do seems kind of foreign at this point. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, yeah. it seems a little bit like, like if, if you told that story to like a young musician now, they'd probably be looking at it from the business aspect of things saying like, well, why would you change your name? Like you want people to know who you are. You want to gain momentum. You want to do whatever. But like, there is just something to be said about these guys that just like, they just want to be a part of the scene. They just wanted to fuck shit up, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because I do wonder, do you think, uh, I obviously like I was a kid in the nineties and, and like I was, I don't remember much of New York in the nineties. I was here sometimes, but never in a, never, never would do. I, we did a show once. Um, we did a comedy show at, um, there's this place on 14th Street and or 13th Street and Avenue A, I think. I can't remember the bar, okay. but and it might not even be open anymore. But we got it was like me and a bunch of our friends, like our group of friends that got booked on this show. And my dad was in town. And so this is probably even going back to 2014 or 2015. So this was even this had this was like a little while ago. But my parents grew up in the city in, in the 70s and the 80s and, and all that stuff. So my dad had some time to kill. He had something to do afterwards. And he's like, uh, I was like, I, I'm booked on a show. I'm going to go run down to the to the village to do this show. And he's like, he's like, I'll go with you. I have I have like an hour. Like, I'll go for a little bit. Maybe I can catch your set and leave. Um, 
And then we get on the train and I'm telling him where we're going. And I was like, yeah, it's on 13th and Avenue A or Avenue B. He's like, Avenue B? (laughs) (laughs) He he almost had a fucking, he's like, well, I'm not going to Avenue B. And he doesn't know now that Avenue B is like expensive apartments and like gardens and all these like beautiful, like it's not nothing like what it was in the 90s. And that's what makes me wonder, do you think a scene like this, because obviously I'm assuming there's still some sort of music, well, music for sure, but like a hardcore or a punk scene, but I can't imagine it's what it was when you were really involved in it. Do you think that this can exist outside the 90s? Like, in the, is this is this something that's just for this era? 90s, New York City, Lower East Side, East Village. Well, I mean, just to, to keep it, uh, to keep it like legit, when you say 90s, I'm thinking more 80s when I think East Village, Lower okay. East Side. You know what I mean? Like yeah. 81, 82, 83. Like, just so like any purists out there, like hardcore died in 85. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So just to, so that, so there were places to play though in the 90s. Absolutely. It just wasn't in the back of uh, Niagara, which was in 81 or 82 called A7. Right. You know what I mean? So it wasn't that. But yes, there was definitely places to play in the 90s. And I don't see in New York City, you know, the the New York hardcore scene and the punk scene was like a bunch of that started as a bunch of like kids who some of them were squatters. Some of them were runaways. Some of them were living just in the streets. Right. That's the the lore of New York City hardcore. Um, And and that, you know, they created their own scene. And that's what was so special about it. There wasn't any like, you know, commercial anything yeah. for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even bands like the Bad Brains, which are the original, one of the original hardcore bands from New York, from DC, would move to New York in like 79 or 80. Yeah. Like they, you know, they were the original band. They There was no commercial success, really. You right. know what I'm saying? I mean, eventually they got some, but so there was none. So to go back to your question about the 90s, there at least were places to play in the nineties um, as opposed to now. I don't think there really are many places in Manhattan uh, for shows. Right. You know what I mean? There's a place called uh, the Bowery electric. Yeah. That's uh, on the Bowery. Not, but the, the connection with that place and Niagara and a seven is it's owned by this guy, Jesse, who's an original hardcore kid from the streets in the eighties, mm-hmm. maybe not from the streets, but so he, you know, he has a, you could play shows. They would maybe have some hardcore shows there because people know it's Jesse's place. Right. And they're not going to fuck it up. Right. You know what I mean? So there's some respect and he's going to allow things that maybe some big commercial place wouldn't allow like moshing and things like that. Um, but I think that, you know, it did kind of move to parts of Brooklyn uh, in the 2000s, at least like my band in the 2000s was called Everyday Dollars. And we played shows more in Brooklyn, uh, like, you know, Bushwick and like parts of Williamsburg. Well, yeah. And that makes um, sense, because if you don't live in New York City, like like Manhattan at this point is squeaky clean other than maybe very, uh, very far uptown in, in New York City. But everything else. It's, and I don't know what's going to happen once the pandemic is over and like what's going to happen with people you know, leaving the city and moving to Austin and Miami and all these places. But um, Bushwick is like gutter at this point. Bushwick is one of the places where it's like it's not wildly dangerous, but it's not nice. You know, it's, it's like, it's kind of like the, one of the 
places that all these like younger artists live now, but they don't like they don't make it. Bushwick's not like a beautiful neighborhood, <laughs> you know. It's like it's like yeah. gutter on purpose. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I got you. Yeah, you yeah. know. But yeah. that's that's the thing is. Like, Go ahead. Yeah, but I moved to New York in like '93, and I came in the '80s. If I were Twenty-something-year-old me in twenty twenty-one. There's nothing here, nothing right here. Yeah, for me. As you just mean you know, in general, who, or Manhattan, or well, just a, yeah, in Manhattan. As okay. a guy who wanted to be in a band, as a guy who was into like certain cultural things, you know what I'm saying? Um, there's any place that I played. Or or hung out at I DJ'd for for a while there in, in the uh, in the early in the two thousands. Yeah, every single place I DJ'd is closed. There's nothing. I wouldn't come here in 2021. It's it sucks. <laughs> Manhattan, that is. Yeah. It, it does. I, I mean, there's not you know none of the things that I came for are here at all. You know, I mean, sure there's there's there is a hardcore scene, but it's just different. And it you know I don't know it like i knew it when i came here almost 30 years ago you know what i'm saying does it need does it need that element of grime to to really flourish do you think i mean you know uh, what new york or the music scene well new york clearly the answer is no because people still <laughs> keep you know it's just a different type of person that lives here now you know 90s you had Manhattan specifically, like the places that I used to go in Manhattan as a as a little Italian kid were literally Little Italy, uh, Chinatown because my grandpa liked had like a specific <laughs> Chinese restaurant that he liked there. Um, and then once it was cleaned up, we would go to Times Square and do a bunch of like the tourist places. It's not like we were out and about all over Manhattan. Oh, I guess like the down by the seaport and stuff too. But uh, again, it was like we would do things that were a little more like either family friendly because we were a little family but it wasn't there was still an element of like a plumber could live here you know yeah like there were people that lived on mott street or or mulberry street or whatever who just were working joes and now that does that doesn't exist anymore so it really it changes the flavor of of the city yeah and i think with with punk and hardcore music in particular you know there's this there's this vibe to it that it's like it's very anti kind of commercial Mm -hmm. and it's very you know it's wild i mean it's dudes are moshing and 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 it looks like they're hurting each other but they're not and everything in new york city or manhattan is so commercial that there's no way for that to really exist yeah you know we we would go to shows and the dudes in the hardcore bands would be the bouncers right when there's a place where there's bouncers that work there if they didn't know, they're jumping in thinking there's a fight. We're fighting the bouncers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like it really because Manhattan, the way it is, is so commercial. It it that type of music, unless the owners are very aware of what it is, can't really exist because it's so misunderstood. You know what I'm saying? I do. I mean, it makes sense because realistically, you'd have to think that. Owners have to think about the people that might be coming into their bars. And if there's less and less actual edgy people, like, and there's more and more just kind of people that work whatever their job is, uh, you know, even if they are, because creative people now are not necessarily these like renegade runaways, you know, like you were talking about people like squatters and stuff like that. That's that whole, I know it's like kind of like a weird reference for the conversation that we're having, but 
if you look at Rent, the Broadway show, like that was written um, sort of as um, the the lifestyle of of these struggling artists, like really actual struggling artists in the very late 80s and the early 90s where they were living in a tenement like uh, they were squatting in a tenement somewhere yeah. somewhere in Alphabet City you know um, and people were literally banging down their door saying where's the fucking rent like but you had those types of communities where now it's like even if you're an artist like I know so many people that are just like they're creative directors somewhere they're not like struggling artists they're you know or, or artists that are just sort of like um you know, they're graphic designers now and they're, they like work for brands and like whatever. It's they just, do podcasts. Yeah, or they do podcasts. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So you have all these different, it, it's just so different than than what it was like. And obviously that's why it's, it's better to get an account from somebody who was actually there as opposed to somebody who, you know, waxes poetic about a time that I, I was not present for. But yeah, I mean, it's the thing that kind of messed up, you know, all of that. I mean, you know, when Giuliani became uh, mayor, he enacted this like law about you couldn't hang out on the street. Mm-hmm. Right. Like and, and, and CBGB's was this tiny place that they would pack with like three to four hundred people max. Like you're you're like this to the back of the club. Yeah. Like this. Right. The band's playing. It's hot. There's a back door. You can open that. Hang out in the back a little bit. But when the band's done playing. All these people, there's no air conditioning. Yeah. All these people who were packed like sardines would go out into the street. Yeah. Catch a smoke, drink a 40, yeah. hang out. Then fucking Giuliani came and like, they were like, you can't go outside. I remember the first thing, you can't go outside and fuck in front of CBGBs? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Like, that's what you do. Yeah. You fucking hang out with your crew in front of CBGBs. You go see the band, you come back outside and hang out again. Yeah. You go across the street to Sal's Deli and you buy a 40 and you fucking hang out. Yeah. And when they came with the cracking down on the 40s in the streets and, and that type of shit, that like kind of hurt places like that. It still happened, but like that's just an example. I remember the first time some of those tour buses would come down the Bowery. Oh, like the, uh, hanging out in the streets would be throwing fucking bottles at it and shit. You know what I'm saying? Like the visit New York tour buses. Yeah. Those, those tour, the open fucking, the open top rooftop, double decker bullshit fucking things. Yeah. Like, oh, fucking throwing bottles at it. Yeah. 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 You know? So it's like, that's when that shit was started happening. You knew it was like, oh, this is fucking over. I mean, so you could feel it as it's happening. You're there. Yeah. There's a bar. Yeah, there was a bar called Mars Bar, which like was this. It's a TD Bank now on Second Avenue. Yeah, and it's like it was like the disgusting punk rock, you know, graffiti Did you everywhere. Drop a it's like when places like that started going down and turning into TD Banks, you're like, yo, this is fucked up, you know. Well, because I was gonna ask you about that, like, just about CBs in general, because again, it's it's something that I, I mean, I was a, I was in New York by the time it was right around the time it was closing, but it closed in 2006. Oh, maybe I wasn't then. I thought it closed way later than that, but uh Nah, I couldn't fucking believe it. I went I was there every week for like the last couple of months. I remember the the Bad Brains played there. They played the last week. I was at every show. It was fucking awesome. Yeah. So but like what is yeah, it like to see it uh, as a John Varvado store now? It fucking kills me. I, yeah. I went in there once because I swear, dude. I first went to CBGB's, I think it was 1987, in the summer of 87. My band, my friend's band, the Pagan Babies, drove down from Philly. I was kind of like the roadie guy and shit. And we went into that place. It was like the holy, like, it was like, this the is, spot. Yeah. had a smell to it. Yeah. Like, I just felt like 
I could stand in the corner and like just melt into the wall. Like I was like, I fucking loved CBGB's so much. Yeah. And it hurt me so much when it closed. All my favorite bands played there. You know, and some people are like, oh, you know, they didn't like the management or they didn't have a problem with this person or that person. But for me personally, I could just lean into that wall and just fucking meld into it. I yeah. just loved it so much. And when it closed, I personally feel like that was like a real, you know, dagger in the heart to that that kind of hardcore scene in the city. And a lot of people say it wouldn't. Fuck CBs, we're going to go somewhere else. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. But for me personally, I went into Varvados one time and and I got like emotional. Yeah. Like literally emotional because some of the wall is still the same and some of the stickers are still the same. And I'm like, like I, it's so, so funny. They kept part of they there. kept part of like the the wall. Yeah. Is it like a tribute or an attempted it's tribute? Like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go in there, it's like you could almost. I mean, you don't get the feeling, but you almost get the vibe off of just the wall. Yeah. And it like, I remember I went in there and there's like clothes I would never wear. And there's some records on the wall, which is cool. I mean, Barbados yeah. is like kind of like a rock and roll guy, whatever. Yeah. But I like went like to a corner and was just like feeling the wall and just kind of like, like, like this close to it. Just like, <laughs> just wanting to be there. And it's sales guys like... <laughs> Can I help yeah, you? Can I, yeah. And I'm like, dude, I leave me the fuck alone, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm in pain. I'm in mourning. Yeah. And it still hurts. It really does. It had, I had such a connection with that place. I, I, I feel like in another life, I was like, you know, a, a fucking kid on the streets of New York City in the 80s, early 80s, just in CBGBs. It's like, it's so weird how I just, I love that place so much. I mean, it, it makes hurts. sense, man. I, I, have you hung out there that much? Did you play there? Oh, I played there with uh, two of my bands. Yeah. Multiple times. Um, yeah. And it was amazing. And, and it was just like the best, you know, just being there, being on that stage. The thing about CBGBs that people may or may not know about, if when you record it off of the board, bands recorded records off of the board of CBGBs, they would go there yeah. and play live. And record that and put it out. Like the sound system was unbelievable. And they had this wall of speakers above that just hit you. It had the best sound of any punk rock hardcore. Even like clubs that were like bigger clubs that would have shows that were more expensive clubs. CBGB's had the best sound. It had the, I think, the perfect amount. I think it was like 350 or 400 was the most you can get in there. It just, it fucking killed me. That I remember the last time. I was in CBGB's for the last show. I was like taking pictures and just like, I was sad. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, man. 15 years ago and I'm still sad. Yeah. You know, it's like, it still hurts me and I'm not even in the music really. I mean, I don't play music like I used to and I'm not in a band or anything. And it's just like, man, that fucking place. It just, that just, that just hurt yeah. me personally. It hurt a lot of people. I mean, you know, I think it did a, a big blow to the to the scene, but some people would argue differently. And you know, we'll find another place for shows. This guy's an asshole, and that guy fuck him. But okay, but yeah, CBG, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. There's certain places they're just. It just sort of seems like they they're landmarks. They should exist. They have to exist. Otherwise, but I think that's like part of the issue. Is is one of the things I wanted to ask you about too? Is like as you're as you're getting a little bit older, um. 
I'm starting to see this already where I like hip hop music. It's not my favorite type of music, but I'm a, I'm a hip hop fan. Um, they're already, I'm too old for what's coming out now, you know? And it's the first time I've started to feel like, okay, they haven't, this music is not for me. And it's the first time that I felt that where I was like, there's a popular music. Like I don't, I can't, Lil Uzi Vert, I I'm told is like the biggest artist on the planet in terms of just like his overall appeal and like his streams and whatever. I don't know one, not one of his songs, not one. I, I know who yeah. he is because he has a diamond on the, his fucking forehead. But like, it's the first time that like the biggest artist in the world um, is not making music that I hear, um, uh, understand, desire. Like, it's weird. What is that feeling like? Because you were saying even just it's- like that feeling with CBGBs where it's like time passes. The next generation kind of doesn't have the reverence for something the way that, that you do or I do or whatever. And then it just kind of goes, you know? So, yeah, I mean, well, for me, I mean, first of all, so many of these records behind me, I used to DJ, I have probably almost every hip hop 12 inch from like 85 to 97 is where I kind of, peaked out like when you know when biggie passed away or biggie passed away when biggie was shot uh you know so i and like i liked hip-hop i went to the fresh fest in 87 and i you know i saw a lot of cool hip-hop in my time yeah like it was never the most popular music you had to fucking find that shit right you know what i'm saying so that's kind of where it kind of connects with hardcore with me it's just like this kind of almost not alternative but this different type of music they just you know you had to wait till you know in philly it was lady b you know at, at some point at, at 10 o'clock it, like they wouldn't even play it during the day and hip-hop became so mainstream you know with, with like jay-z and all that shit so it's it's i understand exactly what you're saying you know what i'm saying it just happened to me 24 years ago. <laughs> so what have you been doing for the 24 years? This is the thing. I don't know what I'm going to, I, I I've hit my peak. I don't know what, what music there is to go find. Well, I mean, there's just because you don't know who little Uzi Vert or whatever hell his name is like, that's commercial hip hop. Yeah. There's still underground hip hop that exists. Yeah. I guess you, you know, gotta you go find it. To, you know, that's what I kind of did with, you know, guys like MF doom and, right. and, and, you know, music like that. It, it, there is underground stuff. You just and it's probably even easier to find it now, like because there's so many platforms for it. You know, yeah. back in the day, there was like in Philly, Power 99 FM. Like, yeah, I, it's it's so funny because I've been going through my shit because I've been out of work for a year, and I I found mixed not mixtapes. I taped them right off the radio of like old hip hop shows. Yeah, it's just to listen to that shit. It's like wow, this is this is this is not the same anymore at all. Well, do you? You have a whole case of records behind you, a whole bookshelf of them. Uh, and we're going to do a little fun thing with records in a second. But in terms of finding that new music, you were saying that like you had the radio station in Philly. Um, yeah. I, I had it for a little... There used to be some um, CD stores. There was like a Sam Goody. There was Tower Records and stuff like that. But by the time I was a teenager, they were kind of gone. I can remember yeah. the FYE closing in the Freehold Mall when I was a kid, and that was kind of that. Virgin Megastore? Yeah, Virgin Me- the Virgin Megastore that was in Times Square. I remember going when I was in high school, I think. And then that, like all of these places are now gone, but the record stores still exist. 
do you find like to you is there anything better than finding something because at this point for me i'm not discovering new music at a record store i love going to the record store and i love finding like records that i love that i just don't have that at this point you know are fun to collect, but I'm not really finding anything new at a record store. I imagine there is a time for you though, where you're digging through crates and it's like a Dude. real victory to find some shit. Oh. Like what's that feeling like? Cause I don't think that That's I can the, ever get that. Like realistically, best, everything is on Spotify now. The best feeling in the world, dude. Yeah. When I would come to New York, my girlfriend lived in the Bronx. I literally bought a backpack that I measured the backpack to make sure 12 inch records could fit in the back of it. Yeah. So that I could zip it and have records because I would just go hunting for records like dingy basements, like in the West village in the Bronx on Fordham road and the bottom of some jewelry store. And I would just be like, just, I would come out with like stacks of records, just like, boom. Yeah. You know what I mean? Shove them in my backpack. It's the best feeling in the world when you would find like something you were looking for or discovered these places, some of them had a turntable so you could take the record out, put it on and actually listen to to the fucking tracks. Yeah. One of the best spots was right near Penn station. It was called a colony. Oh my God. No, no, no. Uh, Rock and soul. Okay. The back, the front was like an electronic store and the back was like, like this times 10, just, fucking records yeah and the dudes were super cool yo i'm looking for some oh go check this out or go listen to that they had a record player you could put it on and fat beats is another great store on uh sixth avenue and and, and uh eighth street you go up it was on the second floor dudes like raw like uh most deaf and fucking uh uh the other guy his partner Talib Qual- Star. Talib yeah, Qual- yeah yeah they would like be hanging out there like you would just they, they, any anything that was on the wall, you bought it because you knew it was fucking good. Because Fat Beats wasn't putting no bullshit on the fucking wall. That's sick. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's great, and you can listen to it. Yeah, anything anything shown, I was like, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. Never heard of it. I'm getting this. Yeah, and I would never, never, uh, never regretted it. Yeah, never. There's a time you really had to go find the music that you liked, and obviously, I think you lived a little more of it than I did because by the time I was doing that stuff when I had money to buy records. They were all, I was already illegally downloading it, <laughs> but, yeah. um, all right. So we have, we're, we're going to do a little, I don't know if we're, it's a really a game, but we have a little thing that we're going to do here. Are you ready for this? Um, so sure for the listeners, Sean and I, Sean has a much, much bigger record collection than I do. I'm, I'm kind of a baby. I, I would have been buying more, but I lost my job, which many of you remember uh, at the beginning. Are you still buying records without a without a job right now? No, I haven't really. You know, I DJed for a while in the 2000s. And yeah. I was buying a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I, I haven't bought a record probably in years. Okay, honestly. got it. Um, I just did buy one that I'm waiting for, but I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to. Hopefully, my wife won't be home when it comes. <laughs> Love she, it. Like our bed is literally right there. Yeah. And when she lays in bed, that's what she sees. Yeah. And she's cool with it. Yeah. We don't see eye to eye on music. Okay. She respects my my, my collector sort of thing. Yeah. But at the same time, she's like, you know, I could probably put my kid through school with some of these records. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's money in there. Yeah. And right. there's people buying them. Right. So, you know, we... <laughs> She would probably rather. So when this record comes, I'm gonna have to figure out how to like just sneak it in. Fucking 
duck it in somehow, you know, and it'll be the first record I bought in a while. I haven't fought. I haven't really felt compelled to buy records. You know, I used to have two. I still do. I have two turntables, yeah. Technique 1200s that I spent hours trying to learn how to mix beats and blend beats and shit. Like I would write, I would literally listen to a song and count the beats in 30 seconds and double it. And that's the beats per minute and put a little sticker on it. And yeah. like, I used to go fucking crazy with the shit. Yeah. All right. Well, so what we did was we picked five records that we're going to show off to each other. Um, and I know for you, you have more records than I do. It was probably harder for you to pick five than it was for me to pick five. Although I will say it was still hard. I couldn't even actually fully pick five. I have five and one honorable mention. Um, some of these <laughs> records, Sean, that you're pulling, I think are probably going to be, they might be records that I don't actually know about. I did consider this. I was going to ask you beforehand because I don't want to sound like a fucking idiot here when you're just, you pull out like a bad brains record or something that I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but I think what we should do here is we pull out the record, uh, we show it off. We'll show it off for the camera because this is absolutely going to be the the Instagram clip. We show it off for the Zoom camera, and then we explain why we like it, um, perhaps why it's important to you, uh, maybe your favorite song on the album, what's on the album for the listener, um, and that's that. Uh, we're just going to show off our love for music and our love for records. Would you like to go first? Or do you want me to go first here? Like I said, I have, I unfortunately have six because I couldn't pick five. I have like. 27 so i'm picking five as we speak okay and like some of them are by the same artist yeah but, you know. all right so my honorable mention which it almost it broke my heart to not put this one in my top five because it does mean so much to me um and it means so much uh to me really the the thing that that um makes it so close to me is that I think it means a lot to the state of New Jersey. I have here, uh, this is darkness <laughs> on the edge of town by Bruce Springsteen. Um, so this is my favorite Springsteen album. Hands down. Uh, I, everybody born to run is like the, the classic. Um, but darkness on the edge of town to me, uh, is just, I think this is Bruce writing at his best. You have Badlands opening this thing up. I used to drive around New Jersey on Route 9 listening to Badlands with like my heart rate would get up to like 200 beats per I just be like, "Yeah, Badlands." You know? Um and I don't know, man, there, there is something about this album that is uh it is very dark, but at the time when I was listening to it, when I was driving around listening to Springsteen at at peak, you know, 20-year-old angsty Mike, I it just I connected with it more than almost any album that and I it's one of the first times I listened to an album start to finish and I was just connecting and I was I was seeing the songs in my head, you know, the lyrics, he's painting such pictures where it's like racing in the street, you see the guy, like this depressed guy who really is just living for uh, driving his sick car around New Jersey, you know, uh, and racing people. And you just start seeing these things and you they're, they're like people that you know if you live in New Jersey. You, you, you listen to a Springsteen song, you're like, that's so-and-so's dad. Or that's like, you just, you know these people. Um, and I think for me, that's why it, it's got to be. It, it, I felt bad leaving it off the top five because <laughs> some of the stuff that I threw in there is going to be um, uh, hard to defend putting over a Springsteen album. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> I mind going no particular order because there's no way I could say this is my favorite record of all time. Yeah. Okay. Um, the one I'm going to pull out first is uh, 
David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, uh, Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars. You know, it's gives me chills just holding it yeah. here, honestly. One of my first concerts I went to was David Bowie uh, in 1983. Wow. Uh, with my dad. I used to have a bit about it. I did in comedy where he pulled out a joint and passed it to my friend. And my, my friend's like, dude, your dad's smoking a joint. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So like, I don't, my dad wasn't a Bowie fan, but my dad knew that I kind of liked Bowie and got me tickets. Um, this saw this, this record. Uh, I remember I purchased it uh, on the side of like, on like the, the Roosevelt Boulevard, there was some dude who had a bunch of records and I was like, Oh shit. I picked this up for like a couple dollars. Yeah. Um, you know, even to this day, my daughter, uh, when Bowie passed away, my daughter, uh, sang Starman at, uh, at a talent show in front of like 300 people at her school yeah. when she was in third grade with Bowie makeup on. Really? Um, oh yeah. In dude, full makeup? Fucking, dude, like the whole deal, like the lightning bolt. That's like, awesome. I can send you a picture. She made the shirt based on a, a Bowie shirt. Yeah. Like she painted the shirt. And and Starman's on here, and, and so this is the great one of the greatest records of all time. I agree, but like the fact that there were people in the audience because Bowie had just died were crying because my daughter was on stage in third grade singing Starman. Man, um, so yeah, this this is one of you know David Bowie, you know Ziggy Stardust, but he's one of my favorite. I literally there's like. This many Bowie records yeah. up here, like Bowie, 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 Bowie. And I see the Aladdin Bowie. Sane uh, uh, poster above the Marshall amp. Yeah, yeah. There's the fucking record for Aladdin Sane, which yeah. is probably the second Bowie record I would pick. But yeah, it's on the wall, and I'm like, so anyway, this this has a lot of meaning. Bowie's one of my favorite. I cried on the subway the whole my way to work when I I'm getting choked up even fucking talking. <laughs> I hear about it, man. That's I so love great David though. Bowie so much. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that my daughter loves him and, and, and my mom and my brother, and it's like, it blows me away. So David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, Sparty's from Mars. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that's great, man. Uh, I'm glad that, that I, I glad, I'm glad I got the emotion out of you. <laughs> you, you really did. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is, this is actually starting my top five now. All right. This is bridge over troubled water. This is Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, so I had to pick this. This is, I had to think about it as I was like um, picking these records. Uh, the thing that I realized was I have, I think I have almost, I don't have every Paul Simon record, but I have, I have so much Paul Simon in my right. I have like, I think I have like 35 records and I'd say eight of them are, are Simon and Garfunkel or Paul Simon. And I, I, I didn't even realize it. Um, but Bridge Over Troubled Water, I think... I think is my favorite album. Uh, you have Bridge Over Troubled Water on it, but then you have a whole bunch of songs on here. This is just like, this is Simon and Garfunkel. Just, it's so sad that this was sort of the end for them. They did the concert for Central Park, uh, in Central Park after this, years after this, really after Simon had this like badass solo career for, and Art Garfunkel didn't. Um, but there is so much good shit on this album. The Boxers on here. Um, the only living boy in New York is on here. This is another one of these albums where once when I was angsty in college and I was walking around, like when I first started going to the city and I'd walk around the city wearing headphones on like a rainy day and I was feeling lonely or whatever. This is the album that I think made me like, I, I connected to it. I connected to a lot of the people, like the characters in these, in these songs. Um, 
And I just love Simon and Garfunkel, man. I love tight harmonies. For them, they they like blew out this album and they were doing really big sounds. It was one of the first times that they had really... Bookends has a little bit of that and they experiment on bookends. But this one was just like straight up... Um, I think Paul Simon is the best um, songwriter in like... Or at least the most underrated because he's... People will usually tend to give it to like Bob Dylan. But Paul Simon's songs are all seemingly like about people and about thing you can understand them and you can relate to them where sometimes you listen to a bob dylan song and he's just talking about like well and then the joker bit my asshole and he's like doing all this stuff that you have to, it's like cryptic and you're just like oh yeah man like dylan uh, he's putting these things together and the song's really about this with paul simon you never really have to like think about it you're hearing the story and you're kind of like uh I related to a lot of the the people that he wrote about and the music is just beautiful. So that's my number one. And I don't have the rest of these in order, but that's my that's the only one that I can think of as like a number one for me. Your turn. Cool. You know how many Paul Simon records I have? I'm going to guess zero. <laughs> that would be zero. Coming from zero a guy who saw zero. a band uh, 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 barbed wire a bat and smash the uh, other people yeah. in the head with them. <laughs> yeah, no, no disrespect to Paul Simon. I get you. And, and I mean, I'm a you know, I yeah, those guys are amazing songwriters. It just wasn't ever my thing. Actually, yeah. um, this record, uh, Tribe Called Quest, the Low End Theory. Yeah, great. Um, you know, I was in college when this came out. My roommates were two dudes from the Bronx. We, we got along great. We, we hung out all the time. We bugged out over this record. Um, and it just, you know, brings me, but like I can, every song on here is amazing. Yeah. Good friend of mine who I grew up with designed their first record. So I knew about them from design the artwork. Yeah. He did the artwork on it. Him and his, his girlfriend. Wow. Did the, uh, the artwork for uh, low end theory or no for, um, Oh, fuck. Uh, this is a low end theory. What the fuck's the name of the first record? Midnight Marauders is the last one, isn't it? Well, not the no, last the one because they. Hold on. Funny thing is. <laughs> we got it right here. Okay. Sean Maybe is rifling through his, his record collection. I know. You know, it's probably in the other room. Mm-hmm. Oh, here it is. People's Instinctive Travels. That's uh, right. My friend designed this cover. That's crazy. And it's so funny because. These three characters right down here are like his brother, like his best friend and like his other best friend. Like it's pretty dope artwork. Yeah. Um, I love this record, but this is the Tribe Called Crest record for me. Yeah. Um, Owen Theory, like I said. And, you know, my friends at college, we would just bug out on it. We'd probably smoke weed and like the jazz aspect of it. Like Fife Dog really comes to life on this record. Yeah. Q-Tip was mad cool. Like it was just like this, this. This is one that's like, oh, this is this is top five for sure for me. Yeah. Great um, album. Second. Yeah, it is. And Midnight Marauders was third, but I'm not gonna put that up. <laughs> We're not going there. They're both Sorry. they're both just, great. Tribe is underrated. Right I think they're underrated as as a as a group, uh, just in general. I think that they're like they're probably I mean, EPMD might be uh, run who knows? I could go on and on about but Tribe of Cold Quest were definitely Probably one of the best hip hop groups of all time. Yeah. According to me. All right. My next one Elvis Costello, Armed Forces. I love this album. This is one of my favorite. This is easily one of my favorite albums. I bugged out when I found this in the the record store and 
uh, I was still, this is when I was buying records in New Jersey at my parents' place. There's a record store down the street that had records for like a dollar. I couldn't fucking believe it. Oh, nice. So I picked this one up. Um, uh, Oliver's Army, such a great song. Now, this is the thing. I never, I always knew about Elvis Costello. They never played his songs on like classic rock radio. And he was from that era. He's, he's a guy that was like most relevant in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and he is, I guess, by definition of um, like th- that era, classic rock. But yeah. you'd only ever hear his music sometimes. It was Q1043 in New York City, which was the classic rock station. You'd only ever hear it sometimes. And it would be like when they played a deep cut, they'd be like, all right, here's one you guys haven't heard in 15 years. It's Oliver's Army by Elvis Costello. And I'd hear it. I remember hearing Oliver's Army for the first time. And I was like, who the fuck is this? And it was the first time I really expanded my palette to go from like, all right, I like Led Zeppelin and I like the Beatles and I like you know, Rolling Stones and whatever. But I got to find these other guys that didn't quite have... Because the more I learned about Elvis Costello, the more I figured out that like he, he might not have been a huge, huge, huge mainstream success. He's not like a Zeppelin where he sold 100 million albums or what you know whatever. But I mean, people love his music and he's sort of this like... like almost like one of the first like indie alt guys where he was like making rock music, but it wasn't quite... Uh, like super commercial. It's almost like the clash in, in some ways. I feel like they were kind of like cousins. He wasn't making punk music. Do you know what I mean though? Where it's like, yeah, well he kind of came out of that scene like yeah. that, that, you know, alternative. Do you know the story about him and probably why he wasn't on the radio for a long time? Well, I know that there are issues because in England he had that uh, radio radio song, which was like yeah. a, a, an opposition to like like BBC's tactics, I guess, and like how their practices or, or whatever. And I know that he he also did a lot of shit where he couldn't get out of his own way. Like I know that yeah. he when he was on SNL, they played radio radio, and and he got banned from SNL. And the Beastie Boys, you, see, you ever see that? Which one? The like when he actually did it, or when the Beastie yeah. Boys brought him back? No, no, no. When he did it. I've seen it before, but I don't, I don't have, I know he like, he, he starts another song and then he yeah. goes, ladies and gentlemen, we're playing a different song tonight. No, no, no wait, stop, stop, stop. Yeah. One, two, three. And it, yeah. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. It's awesome. And I mean, like, it sucks that he never, I, I don't know if he just did a lot of that shit. I, I don't know enough. Of, I'm a fan of his, a big fan of his, but I don't know enough about him to know if he just couldn't get out of his own way, but he made some great music. I also love the artwork on this album. Yeah. And then the backside is the elephants, which was the cover art. Um, I think it was the original cover art. And then they came out with, with this one, but yeah, I love this album. It's, it's so yeah. fucking good. It's great. Uh, number three for me again, not in any order is uh, the clash. You talked about the clash. One of my favorite albums too. I'm, I'm sad you that know, I don't have it on vinyl. I can't, I, I love this album yeah. so much. Um, Joe, I met Joe Strummer. Did you um, really? Several times, uh, different through different people. I had a good friend in New York who knew him. Yeah, and when he played the Virgin Megastore. Yeah, I literally was on stage while Joe Strummer was playing with his band, the Mescaleros. Like he's playing like right next to me. Like it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Um, this record has there's not a bad song on here. I agree. Um. This 
this this is actually hanging in my living room. I had to take it off the wall. Oh, I'm glad. I'm so honored that you did that for me, Sean. <laughs> like I left a blank spot up there. My wife's like, "What do you?" I was like, "Relax." Yeah. Um, this photo is, you know, Paul Simonon. I think this was in New York City. Um, I, I this is one of the greatest records of all time. You know, and one it's of my favorite songs like, is on the the card sheet. Is one of my favorite songs. It's like a yeah, kind of a deep like, cut, but I can't even tell. Like favorite song. I mean. I could sing every lyric to everyone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Rudy can't fail. Yeah. Hateful. You know what I'm saying? Like lost in the supermarkets. Awesome. It's great. Yeah. Revolution rock. Yeah. You know, but this one is, this one is, is, is Sandinista. Yeah. One of my favorites too, because it's just so different. And uh, like, there's so like every type of genre of music's on here. There's it's like amazing. 40 songs on there too. Yeah. It's three records. Yeah. Yeah. It's a they lot put of out music. A three record album of, with no hits, real no radio hits. Yeah. Besides, Magnificent Seven, I guess, is kind of a radio hit, but it was like a rap type style. Yeah, and Magnificent the Seven is the. I think Magnificent Seven got more juice like after the fact. I think that people look back at that and they're yeah. just like, "That song kicks ass. The baseline's cool." You know, the Clash paid, played like eighteen shows in a row in Times Square with like the Bad Brains was yeah. one of them with Grandmaster Flat. Like they, you know, they're, the Clash are one of the greatest bands of all time, and that's one of the greatest records. Hard to say, probably one of my favorite out of all of them. And I just was like, this this has to be shown. On and also, podcast. those guys couldn't play their instruments. Like, they learned how to do all that shit, like, as they were a band. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Paul Simon and the bass player could barely play. He had the yeah. tape on the top of his thing. But their, their, their drummer, Topper, is one of the greatest drummers of all time. Yeah. He kind of made that band because he was able to adapt did a different type of music that that Mick Jones and Joe Strummer were were creating. Yeah. Whereas if they didn't have him as a drummer, I don't think the music would have been as good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The Clash is. Uh, I'm, they're so fucking good, man. Um. All right. Here's my next one. I'm switching it up. I'm going jazz. This is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is Time Out. This is the Dave Brubeck Quartet. I, for my money, this is the greatest jazz album of all time, and uh, also one of the more commercial jazz albums. But this is one of the first times that jazz um, takes like a real leap. Uh, Dave Brubeck goes to to Turkey and and figures out this new syncopation style, where there hadn't really been a real innovation in jazz in in a, a solid chunk of time. It went from like like the uh, the original jazz artists, very free form. Duke Ellington kind of gave it like a little more of like, um, like, a like a structure. And then you had the bebop guys that came after them, uh, who were also a little more like, like let's think of some stuff on the spot, but then these insane, uh, Turkish, uh, time signatures, uh, on this song, just like, um, blue Ronda while Turk. It's like, you listen to that. You're just like, what the fuck am I listening to? Is this jazz? Is this like you don't really actually know? And I mean, this is also the perfect album to just pop on if you're studying or reading. I used to listen to this in college. I would just pop this on when I was, you know, pretending to study for finals or, or whatever. But it does help you kind of like think a little more clearly. And it uh, also, again, great cover art. Shout out to Neil Fujita. Uh, abstract art. It's so sick. I mean, like, I'm this is one of my favorite albums and one of the, the my favorite things that I own, if I'm being honest. Oh, wow. All right, let's see what I got next here. So you did six. I get to do six, just so, we, just so we're clear. That's fair. So five and an honorable mention. 
Well, yeah, okay, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> I have. To, uh, I need structure here, Sean. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Five and an honorable mention. My honorable mention would be my last one. How's that? Okay. I think. What do we do? Three. So if I did, I did three. You did four. Yeah. Okay. So this four for me, the Stones, Beggar Bank, Beggar's Banquet. Okay. Uh, you know this record is fucking gatefold. It's it's got classic songs. I don't think there's a lot of people that would pick this as their favorite Stones record. Yeah. You know, Sympathy for the Devil and Street Fighting Man are on it. Yeah. But there's, I really dug when they dug into like Prodigal Son. Yeah. And kind of that like deep bluesy, almost country sounding steel guitar. Yep. My favorite era for the Stones is like 68 to like 72 when, uh, when, uh, Mick Taylor was in the band. Yep, me too. He's so underrated as a musician and, and he, you know, he came in after Brian Jones and just fuck. They made four sick fucking records. Yeah, dude. The, the run, the uh, Mick, uh, the Mick Taylor run is very sick. Yeah, that sticky. Give me fingers, shelters. Uh, yeah, give me shelters is my favorite band. Yeah, I mean my favorite song. Yeah, and it's my ringtone. It's not on here. Yeah, but there's just so many. Like I remember making drives back and forth to Philly, like in, late at night, and just putting this on and just being able to like. Like my head would just clear. Yeah. And I it just really, you know, and I saw the Stones, my first concert in 1981 was. Uh, That's before they were Rolling old, Stones. too. What's that? That's before they were old. If you go see them now, oh, yeah, it's yeah. not that the was, same. That was, they toured off of uh, uh, Tattoo You. That was their last decent record, as right. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this Let It Bleed, uh, Exile on Main Street. You know, they, they just fucking killed it with, with, with Nick Taylor. And this, this, I, my brother's like, that's your favorite Stones record? I'm like, yeah, dude, this is my favorite Stones record probably. And one of my favorite records of all time it's for a, multiple reasons. It's a great album. It's like the beginning of them becoming the Stones, really. Yeah. Because like the stuff before that, there's a lot of like whatever kind of Stones songs. Yeah, like they would covers of like goofy blue songs yeah. and stuff. And yeah. Satisfaction is what it is and Paint It yeah. Black, all that stuff is great. But it's not like this. This they. Keith's heroin addiction was fucking coming on. Like yeah. it was like, they got dark. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that whole Altamont static murder. Like yeah. it just it got dark. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, just, that's my favorite period of the stones. Yeah. For me. I no, I'm with you, man. A hundred percent. Um, all right. I got one. This one is going to be, this is, this is a real fucking curveball, and you're not, you're not going to like this one, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right, one of my favorite live albums of all time. Hot August Night, baby. Neil Diamond. Holy smokes. Oh man, I love this. This is wow. recorded at the um uh at the Greek Theater uh in in Los Angeles. And first off, the album cover is just sick. It's Neil Diamond it just crazy. looking just like like out of his mind, hair crazy. And then dude, the energy just matches I, I don't know if there's a better package for like an album where, cause you think Neil Diamond, you think some of these like more like soft songs, whatever, like, and you know, he has a lot of very soft kind of easy listening songs, which I love another great fucking Brooklyn based songwriter. Uh, but this dude, man, he opens this show. He just comes out ripping some fucking high tempo. Like the band is rocking. Like you could tell the energy is just on fire. Um, and he's awesome, man. Neil Diamond again is just so underrated, and it all just like like there's a, there's a double album. Side four, Holly Holy, the version of Holly Holy on this, just kicks ass. And if you ever seen Saving Silverman, um, 
really just like puts a nice bow on the Neil Diamond era and and what a what a stud that guy was. Let me see the cover of that again. Look at this, man. It literally pulled back a little. It literally looks like he was playing bagpipes and somebody yeah, like aired out yeah. the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, it's so sick. And look at this hair. So this is recorded. Yeah, the hair's out of control. Uh, this he is... He looks like Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. So he looks like a metal guy. Oh, dude. Yeah. Plus he's wearing like, he's wearing like a uh, native American, like, uh, um, he's wearing like dream catchers on his shirt. It's awesome. This album That's kicks crazy. fucking ass. And then here's the back. You could just tell like Neil was just getting it that night. He was just crushing it for his people, <laughs> man. I love Neil That's Diamond, so but yeah, I know that that wasn't going to really play to, uh, you know, a punk crowd, but you know, <laughs> okay. It's all right. Uh, speaking of, this this band this is uh this band called Dag Nasty. This is what I wanted to get to. All right. So this I don't know who they are. I've never seen this album. I don't know a single song. So explain to me. Dag Nasty came out around this came out in like 86 uh in in DC. They're from DC. Mm-hmm. Uh there there was a band called Minor Threat. It was a straight edge band. Um and this very like hardcore, you know, mosh crazy style. This I consider this one of the first emo records of all time because the singer, this guy, Dave Smalley, who used to sing with this band DYS out of Boston, long story short. Look at those guys. Um, he sings these songs with like, they're, they're fast and they're hard, but they're like sung. And I could like, I had so many drives again, back and forth where I'd put this on and sing every single lyric. Yeah. Singing about like emotional stuff that nobody else is singing before this record in that type of music ever. Um, I literally, this, this, uh, no, this pinky back to the broken pinky, yeah, <laughs> because of this guy, Dave Smalley, took uh, some guys that weren't these guys and did this record, uh, played this record from end to end. This is the only record. Not the he sung other ones, there's other Dag Nasty records, but they had three singers, yeah. Dave Smalley's the the singer that's not even the original, but he's the best. This record, you know, under your influence, talking about like addiction stuff and, and alcohol. And it's just talking about like real life shit, mm-hmm. like emotional shit, like relationships. I heard this. I heard that. What should I believe? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just like, it's just, oh man, it's, it's, it again, brings chills to me because it's such an amazing record. It's on discord records. Yeah probably sold for like four or five dollars it's one of the last independent labels that you know that out of dc it's just fucking classic classic dc type of hardcore that invented the emo thing 85 86 this is the shit right here Sick. can i say yeah what can i say <laughs> what can i say like i could say like i literally at the top of my lungs in my car We'll be singing this like I can sing, and I can't really sing. Yeah, but, even though you were a singer. Yeah, I, well, I was a singer, <laughs> but it was a hardcore singer. It was more of a yeller. Got it. You know what I mean? No more favors. Yeah, All right, I think you have two left. I got my last one here. Um, no brainer for me. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, the jewel of my collection, even though I don't think this, this actual copy is going to be worth much because some woman wrote her name at the top of this. I just bought this second hand. So it, this belonged <laughs> to Elizabeth Ashley at some point. Um, but I mean, this was, I think this is the greatest album ever made, at least mainstream, you know, uh, commercially, 
we've I've kind of talked about this album on this show in the past when Race Taylor was on. I I, I was actually upset when they took this off the Rolling Stone um, uh, list of the top 500 greatest albums. When they took it off number yeah. one, they didn't take it off. They took it. It was number one. Um, oh. And then they made it like 26th or something when they did their revision in, in the fall. And they made uh, What's Going On, the Marvin Gaye album, number one. And I don't know how, I don't know what has happened in the last, uh, you know, however many years to make people think that it's not, not only is it not the greatest album ever made, but it's the 26th greatest album ever. That's a lot. That's a (laughs) long way to fall. But, um, I just think it really tested the limits of what a pop group could do. You know, they were, they were these four, uh, mop top kids that sang harmonies and, and were like, you know, like a, like a, pop band for girls and then all of a sudden they start making this shift toward becoming these you know very dedicated skillful artists that that you know didn't make a rock album that made an album that has like you know opera on it and has some rock on it and some folk on it and and harpsichord and like all this shit on there that people were just like what the fuck is this also possibly the first concept album well not i guess maybe not because sinatra did a couple of those too but um the first album you know the idea of them just they're not the beatles anymore they're this other band i just thought was like brilliant and also uh it's the first time I, I remember I found the cassette of Sgt. Pepper's. My dad had the cassette. I had a cassette player and my dad had the cassette and I knew who the Beatles were. I had heard some Beatles songs like in the car with my parents and I liked the Beatles, but I didn't know how much I liked the Beatles until I found the cassette, listened to it on the bus. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa what the fuck is this this is out of control and i've just been a tremendous beatles fan ever since uh even though that's kind of like hacky and almost passe to sort of think that the beatles are the best band but they're it's hard for me to not say that the beatles are my favorite band (laughs) you know what i mean i just i it it it, i just can't i can't think there are other i told you how much i like simon and garfunkel and paul simon and i love springsteen and i uh there's a lot of people that are like up there for me and i like you know r&b musician i love fucking teddy pendergrass and d'angelo and like guys like that but there is just something and i don't know if it's when i came to the beatles i don't know exactly what it is but they are just they're my number one and i can't I can't re- I, I can't imagine ever being like fuck this like like I'm I'm tired of the Beatles or I don't think they're that great like you know call me a hack but yeah. no no I mean it, yeah they're one of that record and and the stuff they did in the studio it's it's just you know there's nobody ever nobody thought like that yeah. nobody did anything like that and all of them were just amazing together I'm not a huge fan yeah I have a couple Beatles records I had the White Album I always thought was kind of cool yeah White Album's great. Um, I just, you know, but the fact that they all went out and did all had enormously successful solo careers, yeah. all of them. Yeah. You know, it, it says a lot about and what they did for music. You yeah. Know, and any musician will tell you that how they, the Beatles have influenced them. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Uh, but now here we come to the bad brains. There we go. <laughs> Some more hardcore <laughs> punk. It's funny because there'd be people, this is the bad brains. Uh, this is initially came out as a cassette. It was called the Roar cassette, and they put out a red one, a gold one, and a green one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it only was on cassette forever. 
Uh, these guys changed the game uh, for hardcore. They look like uh, Rastafarian uh, guys, uh, and they incorporated a lot of uh, uh, reggae into their to their hardcore. Yeah, uh, which makes this also kind of cool. Is it uh, colored vinyl, which is kind of dope? I love it. Yeah. That always, uh, Sean, were they one of the guys- bands? So I know that they were op- they were playing with uh, they were opening for Strummer. You said when you saw Strummer, right? The clash. They the clash. For, so the clash. were they one of those one of the bands that like actually did kind of get them into the the Rastafarian music because they started playing that reggae type style for a little bit. I don't know if the Bad Brains did because the Bad Brains. I think they were more influenced by. You know, in the 70s, especially in England, there was a huge Jamaican uh, influence. Okay. Uh, and I think that that's because they cover a bunch of old Jamaican uh, songs, you know, Pressure Drop and, and The Clash, you know. Uh, but these guys were, you know, 1979, they kind of sounded like the Sex Pistols. Okay. And they turned it all around and they sped it up to 100. Super fast, amazing musicians. Uh, the singer, H.R., was one of the greatest front men of all time. He'd do flips on stage. I saw them in 1989. Uh, it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. The Bad Brains and his band Leeway in Philly. Yeah. And he just were all, you know, Dr. Knows, an amazing guitar player. Daryl, the bass player. Earl, the drummer. Like, they were, for hardcore, this is the band, the Bad Brains. Anybody that likes hardcore will tell you that this is, that's the band that, that, that changed the game. They moved, they got banned in D.C., because they were too crazy. They moved to New York and the Lower East Side were a part of that huge New York hardcore thing. And they, they, so many bands were influenced by them that, uh, that, you know, that yeah, I just had to give them props. Mm-hmm. And I guess this, this might be number seven. Ooh, paid in full. But Eric B and Rakim paid in full was one of the greatest hip hop records of all time. Yeah. Rakim's one of the greatest lyricists for me. First hip hop show I ever went to was 1987. Uh, Eric B and Rock Kim, or actually it was '88. I take it back. Uh, they, I, none of my friends would go with me. I had to go by myself because it was kind of scary to go to the Spectrum in Philly to see a hip hop band. I bet, yeah. Uh, you know, as a white dude, I had a 1975 El Camino, and I couldn't even get into the parking lot because everybody was cutting me off. Uh, <laughs> and I went in there, and it was a lot of violence. There were like rows of people fighting, people smoking blunts, smoking weed. I bought like four shirts for my friends who were afraid to go they gave me the money and i put them all on because i was afraid someone was going to take them from me yeah um and i just sold one of those shirts for 400 dollars to some dude the other day wow um yeah so eric b and rakim paid in full so many classic records on here i mean i don't you know it's it's ridiculous i can go on and on but Eric Rakim is the greatest lyricist of all time. We have that hanging up in the uh, in the basement here. The the poster. Yeah, I know. You know where you got it from, right? Was that yours? Yes. No way. Yes. That was yours, and Chris just you gave it to Chris, and he just hanging hung I it up. I gave it to Cheney. I, I was in my bedroom, <laughs> and it just and it was not. You know, it didn't fit with our what was going on. Cheney came, took the subway to my apartment, and got it. Oh and my it god! No, I did. I had yes. no idea that's where it came from. That makes sense, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the shit right there. Oh, my that's God. That's so funny. I didn't know that you didn't know. No, I had no idea. Um, yeah. All right, man. Well, listen, we have gone on. We got to cut this because this has been Dude, going I, on for- I got to say, that was a lot of fun. I hope, it was, uh, right? 
Yes. I mean, even though we don't see eye to eye totally on our top, do you, you use different five records for everybody or how's that work? I haven't you? done this yet. This is the first time I did it. Oh, well, I just, awesome. I just thought that this would be like a cool thing because I know that you're like a, a music geek like I am, you know, but listen, yeah, man, yeah. like I don't, I, I don't have, I don't really have a lot of, um, negative, I don't want to say that there are some bands that I just like, just kind of don't fuck with really. But a part of that yeah. is also like hype. Like, I don't really like the doors, you know, and I don't really like, I don't really like you too. There's like a couple bands where I'm just like, I don't really fuck with them, but I also wouldn't have, I wouldn't have to say that I don't fuck with them if it wasn't for people who are like, dude, these guys rock. They're awesome. You know what I mean? Like, I never hear anybody talk about bad brains and I don't, I don't know that. I just never, never really listened to them. I probably would like them, but you know, like I like music, so I don't like, I mean, it's fast and it's aggressive and it's, and it's. The musicianship is amazing. Yeah. Uh, they were the greatest live band for a while before HR, the singer, kind of got old and phoned it in. Um, you know, when they played CBGBs in 2006 for that last week of shows, HR, the singer, was kind of, he was fucking with the crowd. There's real fast parts and he'd be just standing there. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. They do some reggae songs and he'd kind of get into it a little more. Yeah. He had a fucking motorcycle helmet on and he was a little, he lost his mind a little bit. Yeah. And it was real hard as a Bad Bearings fan to see these guys who are like the greatest band, fast, crazy, aggressive for him just to be like, yeah, I don't know. You know what I mean? It yeah. just was hard. Yeah. I guess. But you. I did get to see him in 89, which I feel when they were on, they weren't at the height. They were at the height in like 82, but in 89, they still had that energy and they still fucking crushed it. And it's probably one of the greatest shows I ever saw. Yeah. And it's funny that every single one of those records that I showed you where I've seen every single one of those performers and, 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 and it's just like, to me, that's like, I'm so happy to be able to have seen these people and maybe not in their prime. I'm lying. I never saw the clash, but I did see yeah. Joe Strummer. Yeah. That's but, still, that's still pretty good, man. I would have liked to have seen, I mean the clash obviously, but I would have liked to have seen Strummer before he died. And I didn't, yeah. you, you'd never know, man. Like I got to see Prince before he died and I, it's sad to me that I'm never like, I'm glad that I got to see him, but he's gone. I would have never thought that Prince had, you know, was a, only would be alive for a couple of years after I saw him, you know? So it's like these yeah. guys, I mean, we lost DMX today, unfortunately, very sad, but like, yeah, you got to go to these shows like, while you can, especially like busted out a DMX record just because, you know, he died. Rest in peace, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wasn't a big fan, but, you know, you got to respect. Yeah, got to show respect. All right, man, listen, this has been awesome. You've been very gracious with your time and I really appreciate it. Um, where can people find you? We didn't even you? talk about the Zoom wedding. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we'll, we'll bring you back. We'll talk about it at some point. It's all right. We, got, cool. we got way more music stuff, which is you know better. This is more fun, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to be able to be like, oh, look at this record yeah. and to pull shit out and, yeah. you know, my air, that's just, you know, yeah. it's all good. Where can, people, where can people find you? Flav up here. Yeah, love it. Favorite, uh, to the audience, he's pulling up a, fl- a Flavor Flav clock. <laughs> yes. Uh, where can right. people find you? Instagram, Twitter. I'm on Instagram, Sean P. O'Hagan. I'm not on anything. I might be on Twitter, and I disconnected my Facebook, but Instagram, dude. I post. I literally post ticket stubs. Did you see my one of my latest Instagram posts? No. Was like all these old ticket stubs from like the Beastie Boys. Nice. So like just cool shit. So I do post some cool shit, you know, on there that people wanted to check out. 
You know what I mean? And it's funny because I'm like, what's my Instagram again? <laughs> you, I you should know like, this, Sean. <laughs> I, I should. And I, I, I can't find it. Where is it? <laughs> I'm like an old man right now. Holy shit. How funny is it? It's Sean P. O'Hagan. That's <laughs> All right, follow Sean on Instagram. Guys, thank you very much for listening. As always, Sean P. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> please rate on Instagram. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend, uh, put it on your Instagram story, whatever. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Mike Coscarelli. Follow producer Ronnie uh, at Ronnie Side on Instagram. Uh, Sean, thanks again for coming on, man. This has been a lot of fun. To the audience, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Mike Coscarelli Rules is hosted by Mike Coscarelli. Executive producer, Mike Coscarelli. Supervising producer, Mike Coscarelli. Associate producer, Ronnie Sai. Edited by Mike Coscarelli. Sound design by Mike Coscarelli. Podcast and social artwork by Chris Chain. Special thanks to all the losers and the haters. I'm ready to get in my head. One dog does another dog.